So we're kind of having our own little summer of love here at Lakeland this year, and here in July, and we're studying uh, the, the Song of Solomon. Now, uh, if you've been around the Bible, then you know the Song of Solomon has a reputation. If, if you're just now coming around to studying the Bible, Song of Solomon has a reputation. Um, it's the Old Testament book about sex. It's the book that some rabbis and, and priests through the years, uh, especially in early history, tried to ban. Um, but some of you also may have heard, isn't this the misunderstood book? Isn't it not about erotic love? Isn't Song of Solomon actually about our relationship between God and people? So that's the question we want to answer today. Is the Song of Solomon about erotic love between uh, man and woman? Or is it about uh, the relationship between God and people? So we're going to say this morning, uh, is this book only about the relationship between God and people? To that we will say no. And yes. How will we say no and yes? Well, we're just going to have to read it together and find out. So we're going to read a little bit of Song of Solomon here. We're going to pick right up where we left off last week, chapter 2, verse 8. I'm going to read into chapter 3 a little bit. This will be a, a, a healthy chunk of the, of the poem here. And remember that it is a poem as, as we read it. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes, leaping upon the mountain, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one. Come away. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the covert of the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. For our vineyards are in blossom. And then she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadow flees. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. Upon my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The sentinels found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and I would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her that conceived me. I abjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the wild does. Do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. Now, if you think about that poem, or if we were to read it again, uh, it starts to get a little uncomfortable. This guy's showing up at this girl's house first thing in the morning while she's still asleep. And he's looking through the window and through the lattice wall. And he's like, wake up, girl, come out here. She tells him to hang out till morning and act like a stag on the rough hills. She lays in bed thinking about him till she's half crazy. She roams around the street looking for him. She asks the cops if they've seen him. When she finds him, she won't let him go till she brings him back to her mother's bedroom. (laughs) Then she tells all the girls of Jerusalem, do not stir up this kind of love until it's ready. I believe you. 
This is hotter than we're used to reading in our Bible. This is why very early in Bible history, uh, certainly in the first century, just after the time of Jesus, rabbis and Christians began to ask, should we have this kind of stuff in our scriptures? Isn't this kind of erotic poetry just going to stir everybody up and get us going in the opposite direction that we're trying to be going? Should this be in our Bible? And they came together and they met and they decided, yes, it can be in our Bible because it's not about erotic love. It's about the love between God and people. And based on that decision, they agreed that it could remain in the Bible. However, here's what happened next. Origen, one of the church fathers, says, yeah, that's right. It's not about erotic love. In fact, you can't even understand the Song of Solomon until you have purged all sexual desire from yourself. And he meant it because he castrated himself. And then celibacy, that uh, making of a promise never to have sex again, became an expectation for Christian priests. And since sexual love is bad for those who serve in the ministry of the Lord, the Song of Solomon must not be about sexual love at all, otherwise it would be bad for Christians to study. By the Middle Ages, we know of 32 different commentaries to tell you what the Song of Solomon means. To put that in perspective, they, we only know of six commentaries to tell you what Paul's letter to the Galatians mean. They had a lot of writing. Now, I read two of them to prepare for this message of those Middle Age commentaries. Let me share with you some of their interpretations. That the kisses in the Song of Solomon are actually the teachings of Christ. That the breast in the Song of Solomon give the milk of the New Testament, which is better than the wine of the Old Testament. Which is really weird. I mean, it's weird anyway, but it's extra weird because uh, this is an Old Testament book written 900 years before the New Testament. Uh, When the girl says, your left hand is behind my head and your right hand embraces me, well, the left hand is good deeds and the right hand is eternal life. Uh, Another commentary said, her breasts are the Old and the New Testament, and that's why you should sleep between them at night. There's going to be some jokes at your house tonight, and mine too. Um, When the shepherd boy tells the shepherd girl to follow him into the pasture for a rendezvous, that's actually Christ telling the church to flee the cities where they're persecuted. Well, that's what one commentary said. Another said, no, that's the devil tempting Christians to come out and walk the path of sinners. So it's either Christ or the devil. You know, it's one or the other. That's the problem with these interpretations. You can't get this stuff from reading the text alone. When I was reading that poem to you, you weren't thinking about the Old and New Testament. No two of these Bible commentaries even said the same thing unless one happened to be copying from the other. And what can an ancient poet 900 years before the New Testament know about writing about the coming New Testament? Well, some would say, they said, well, he's writing a prophecy. If he's writing a prophecy, why does the Song of Solomon never use the word God one time? Or make any mention of the Messiah? Why does Jesus never quote from the Song of Solomon in order to say who he is? He quotes from the Song of Solomon, but not to say who he is. And none of the apostles quote from the Song of Solomon to say that their their writings have come. For these reasons, I have to say that the Song of Solomon is what it appears to be. An ancient, fairly erotic love poem about the love between men and women. And... uh, Four times it warns us not to stir up this kind of passion until it can be fulfilled in marriage precisely because it is so amazing and so powerful. And that's why her warning not to stir it up is repeated in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, and chapter 8. It's the only line that is repeated throughout the poem. It must be somehow central to its meaning.
Now, in the history of Bible interpretation, by the 1800s, the interpretation I've just given you became the one accepted by the majority of scholars, that it is an ancient love poem. And sadly, in the 1800s, that's right when Song of Solomon became one of the least studied books of the Old Testament. Um, There are fewer commentaries even today written about the Song of Solomon than any other Old Testament book. As soon as it became about uh, human love again, um, it became unstudied. And that's too bad because I think understanding this passion given to us by God could really help us with a lot of the pain and a lot of the confusion we suffer in our world and our relationships today. And it could probably give us a more exciting, more fulfilling picture of intimate relationships and how to celebrate what this love that God has given us. So is this book really just about the love between God and people? No, no, it's not. And, and I told you I was going to say that before we started. But I also want to say, yes, yes it is about the love between God and people. And here's why. When God wants to describe his relationship with us, he, especially in the New Testament, he often uses the passion of marriage as the picture. When God wants to describe his relationship with us, especially in the New Testament, he often uses marriage, uh, the passion of marriage as the picture. We've studied these passages before. When God wants to say that he'll be faithful to us, he describes himself as a husband marrying us. When God wants us to follow him and not chase after power and chase after money and other gods, he describes himself as a jealous husband so that we'll know the kind of feelings that God has and and where and why they're coming. When When we do chase after other things and we leave God behind, God describes his own feelings as someone who's been cheated on. And he describes us as adulterers. And that really paints a picture of what's going on. When God wants to talk about heaven and eternal life, he describes it as a groom coming to take away his bride to his home. And and we often say that in communion, don't we? That there's a wedding feast and a celebration. And so once you learn about the passion of lovers from the Song of Solomon, you can also, not instead, but you can also say that you've learned something about the passion of God for us. Now, what can we learn from this uh, kind of odd section of the poem we have today? Well, the first thing you can learn is that you don't have to work hard to go out and chase and find God. He comes bounding over the hills in the morning to you like a teenager going over to his girlfriend's house to invite her out for a walk on the first day of spring. That's how God comes to us. And I felt that, I felt that kind of love before um, from God. Uh, during times in my life when I get, you know, think I'm too busy to pray, I haven't been praying, I haven't been having a time with God, and then I kind of realize where I have gotten to, so I go out and I take a walk, and I say, dear God, it's been a long time since I prayed, and instantly I feel his presence there. Like, oh, I love you, and okay, so I know why you're here, and you know, I have some wisdom for you, and here's a path that you can walk, and my only thought in that moment is, my God, have you been out here the whole time waiting for me to show up? And now that I show up, you're not even like my grandma who's like, well, who are you? I never see you much these days. It's just, you come bounding back. My God, I felt that love. When she's laying awake at night, she's going crazy because she can't find him. She goes up and searches through the street and asks everybody she can find. You know, when you're lost and scared and you're literally laying awake at night, feeling empty, without purpose, without direction, get up, go out and find God. 
when you find him, hang on to him. And I, I mean quite literally. Uh, I've, I finally learned when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're worried, if you can't get back to sleep after an hour, just give it up. Just give it up. Get up. Creep out in the living room. Open up the scriptures. Read something. Say, say prayers. Give those worries over to God. The ancients believed that God woke people up in the middle of the night so that they would have a quiet time to pray that they hadn't been giving themselves otherwise. Chase after God. And the warning she gives not to stir up this love until you're ready to see it through, that kind of applies here too. I want to be careful here. Some of you are watching this stream or you're here because you're investigating church and Christ and you're, you're nervous about it, you're worried, um, but you need something in your life so you want to see if this is all true. Okay, that's all good. You're investigating. Uh, what I'm about to say is for folks who really aren't investigating, you, you believe in Christ and the promises, but yet you come to church not really planning to do anything. You just kind of come in, check off the box, do the church thing. I encourage you, don't do that. Don't come in and flirt with the love of God because when you come in and stir up the love of God, he's going to put a calling on your life and he's going to give you wisdom and he wants to invite you out and take you on this walk to show you this path. It's the first day of spring. And if you're going to say, meh, oh, you'd be better off not to be here at all. But if you're ready to take the walk and go out and see what he has to show you, to, to enter into that excitement, to get married, to take the vows and, and do the journey, then you're in the right place. The love of God, for, to me, uh, always reminds me of this story. Um, this story by, uh, by Gwen Williams. In 1904, a railroad camp of civil engineers was set up near Knoxville, Tennessee. The l and campsite had tents for the men, a warm campfire, a good cook, and the most modern surveying equipment available. In fact, working as a young civil engineer for the railroad at the turn of the century presented only one real drawback, a severe shortage of eligible women. Benjamin Murrell was one such engineer, a tall, reticent man with a quiet sense of humor and a great sensitivity for people. Ben enjoyed the nomadic railroad life. His mother had died when he was only 13, and this early loss caused him to become a loner. Like all the other men, Ben sometimes longed for the companionship of a young woman, but he kept his thoughts between himself and God. On one particularly memorable spring day, a marvelous piece of information was passed around the camp. The boss's sister-in-law was coming to visit. The men knew only three things about her. She was 19 years old, she was single, and she was pretty. By afternoon, the men could talk about little else. Her parents were sending her to escape the yellow fever that was invading the deep south, and she'd be there in only three days. Someone found a tintype of her, and the photograph was passed around with great seriousness and grunts of approval. Ben watched with preoccupation as his, uh, watched the preoccupation of his friends with a smirk. He teased them for their silliness over a girl they'd never even met. Just look at her, Ben. Take one look and tell us you're not interested, one of the men retorted. But Ben only shook his head and walked away chuckling. The next two days found it difficult for the men of the L&N engineering camp to concentrate. The train would be there early Saturday morning, and they discussed their plan with great detail. Freshly bathed, 20 heads of hair, carefully greased and slicked back, they would all be there to meet the train and give the young woman a railroad welcome she wouldn't soon forget. She'd scan the crowd, choose the most handsome of the lot, and have an instant bow. Let the best man win, they decided, and everyone was determined to beat that man. 
The men were too preoccupied to see Ben's face as he held the picture of Virginia Grace for the first time. They didn't notice the way he cradled the photograph in his big hands like a lost treasure or that he gazed at it for a long, long time. They missed the expression on his face as he looked first at the features of the delicate beauty, then at the camp full of men he suddenly perceived to be his rivals. And they didn't see Ben go into his tent, pick up a backpack, and leave the camp as the sun glowed red and the sun sank beyond a distant mountain. Early the next morning, the men of the Illinois Railroad camp gathered at the train station. Virginia's family, who'd come to pick her up, rolled their eyes and tried unsuccessfully not to laugh. Faces were rough from unaccustomed shaves, and the combination of men's cheap cologne was almost obnoxious. Several of the men had even stopped to pick bouquets of wildflowers along the way. At long last, the whistle was heard, and the eagerly awaited train pulled into the station. When the petite, vivacious little darling of the Ellen Inn camp stepped onto the platform, a collective sigh escaped her would-be suitors. She was even prettier than the tintype depicted. Then every man's heart sank in collective despair. For there, holding her arm in a proprietary manner and grinning from ear to ear, was Benjamin Murrell. And from the way she tilted her little head to smile up into his face, they knew their efforts were in vain. How, his friends demanded of Ben later, did you do that? Well, he said, I know I didn't have a chance with all you scoundrels around. I'd have to get to her first if I wanted her attention. So I walked down to the previous station and met the train. I introduced myself as a member of the welcoming committee from her new home. But the nearest station's 17 miles away, someone blurted incredulously. You walked 17 miles to meet her train? That would take all night. That it did, he affirmed. Benjamin Merle quoted Virginia Grace, and in due time they were married. They raised, they raised five children and, and buried one, a 12-year-old son. They worked together on their relationship by being faithful to one another, treating each other with consideration and respect, having a sense of humor, bringing up their children in the knowledge and love of the Lord, and loving one another through some very difficult circumstances. Nana Virginia died when I was 12 and she was 85. At times, though, those clouded eyes would sparkle and dance with the vivaciousness of the girl my great-grandfather knew. They danced especially when she told her favorite story. It was a story of how one man walked 17 miles all night long for a chance to meet the woman of his dreams and claim her for his wife. The love of God is like that. He showed up in Israel, walked to a cross, defeated death, walked out of a tomb, sent his spirit almost 2,000 years before you were born, all to make sure that he'd be here this morning first to meet you. If you're someone here this morning who is uh, watching this or uh, here this morning to you know, investigate this relationship with God, I invite you to step into it. I know that you still have doubts. I know that you still have questions. But uh, that's the way relationships are. If you know enough, if you're sure of the love enough, then that love of God is safe enough for you to explore all the rest of those things. Um, Well, my wife said yes to marrying me. She didn't know what she was getting into. Boy, did she not know. I just hope the love is enough. The love of God is certainly enough. It's certainly enough. So we invite you into the, that wedding feast that the scripture describes today. We celebrate it in the, in the Lord's table. 
If the servers want to come forward, there was a night when Jesus was betrayed and he broke bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he gave thanks and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood. It's poured out for what? For the forgiveness of sin. There it is. As often as you eat my, this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death till I eat and drink it with you in my father's kingdom, which elsewhere in scripture is called the wedding feast. So when you come forward, you receive this promise and you start down this path with God who's coming to you this morning saying, it's the first day of spring and do I have some stuff to show you? Amen.